welcome back to another exciting, fun-filled party episode of Me and Mr. 80s. I'm Nick the Me Fart, and right there is Mr. 80s. Hi everybody, it's Daryl. Want some licorice? <laughs> Black licorice, yes! <laughs> Today on the show, first of all, how are you doing, Nick? Excellent, excellent. Glad to be here. Uh, I heard back from uh, the young lady who could not tell our voices apart and thought that you were a big idiot until she realized it was me. And she says now that she's listened uh, more carefully, she can tell us apart. So, And she still thinks I'm an idiot. No, no. no she knows who the real idiot is. So Everything's been taken care of there. Well, I want to make a note that uh, I had a conversation about one of our great debates, which was... Watch it, your mic. You got a tricky mic there. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, that it was uh, about the Mark McGuire uh, debate. Oh, you heard about that? Yes. And was this from your brother? Yes, it was. Oh boy! And he wanted to debate the fact that uh, Mark McGuire did not save baseball. It was actually two years earlier, Cal Ripken Jr. and his uh, doing the Iron Man right. uh, thing that really brought people back to baseball, but I, I don't remember that as such. I, I don't remember I don't remember the country being lit on fire by, you know, a, a common man, working man going out there and doing his job. I remember people loving the long ball. Okay. Chicks dig the long ball. That's okay, all right, all right. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. You know, your brother's Mr. Sports. Oh yeah. And I would never I mean literally he's Mr. Sports, like he's a professional been a professional sports writer. Um but if I'm not mistaken, uh, when Cal Ripken broke the record, I remember you telling me very specifically that the montage that ESPN played was scored to filters. Um, uh, hey, Dad, how do you hey, like? Man, I shot. No, no. Hey, Dad, oh. how do you like your son now? Wake on my airplane. Wake on my airplane. You know the. Oh yeah. Which came out in 1999. Really. So that would have made Ripken doing that after the big home run derby of 98. So could it be that your brother has got history mixed up in his head? Well, now that we've put it out there to him, I'm sure I will hear back. <laughs> What's the name of that song, that filter song? It's like the only good song Filter ever did. It was like, it was like there, every breath you take. It was like the filter song that soccer moms liked. <laughs> But that had a horrible message to it. It was a really good song. Hmm. Um, I, I can't say I remember. But I remember uh, you telling me. I remember you telling me that ESPN scored the package when Ripken broke the record because they of that lyric in there. Hey, Dad, how do you like your son now? So, oh, so that yeah. Hmm. Well, wow, better me- better uh, memory than I did because I don't I remember that for all. And I know that I know that that song came out in '99. <laughs> You have a specific memory of it. Do you have a, another memory linked to that uh, uh, song? Because I remember that it was out and around the same time as um, "Smooth" by Santana, which of course oh, owned in 1999. Oh, we're doing a Google search here. Yeah, <laughs> I was trying to get there. We're getting too, to the uh, bottom of this. You can't leave the people hanging. Jeez. Well, I was I was going for Mog's uh, help there. Oh wait, there. Well, very my very best of. Let's see what they got. Hey man, nice shot. Welcome to the fold. Take a picture. Take a picture. Oh, okay. 
No, I remember that song. Yeah. Okay. Now you need to do a Google search on Ripken. <laughs> yes. Oh, Chris. <laughs> Nick's brother, Chris. Let's find out. Let's find out if we are going to shame the professional sports writer. <laughs> we're going to find out if my knowledge of pop music is going to bring the sports writer to his knees. Kyle Ripken's record-breaking moment. Uh, You're such a tease. Ripken breaks the record for consecutive games played. Really? On the History Channel? Okay. <laughs> Hitler wasn't there. September 6th on this day, 1995. Baltimore Shortstop played in his 2,131st consecutive game, breaking Iron Horse Lou Gehrig. <sighs> so, right now your brother's having a... So did he retire in 99? Maybe that. Oh, you know what? I'll bet you. That's probably what... Okay, all right. I can, I can actually, I can actually hear your brother laughing. Even though he's thousands of miles away, I can hear him laughing right now. Literally, I hear that laugh. Oh, you son of a bitch, Chris. <laughs> well, we've made one fan's day. So there you go. Thank you, Chris, for, for, uh, Opening up that wonderful discussion. <laughs> All right, so throw me throw me the movie prize. Tell 2000, me what. 2001 is he announced his retiring at the end of the season. All right, so the song was. Oh God. <laughs> We're not going to edit this out, although we probably should. So to answer to answer my own question, no, my knowledge of pop music did not bring the professional sports writer to his knees. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Freeman quit laughing. Uh, today we're talking about Heartland Millionaires. Now, we are very familiar with what the term Heartland means since we are from the Heartland. Oh, yeah. But uh, for some of our folks that maybe don't live in the Heartland, uh, Heartland Rock. Uh, the artists that typically get thrown into Heartland Rock are Bruce Springsteen, uh, John Mellencamp, um, Bob Seger. Oh, Bob Seger, yes. Uh, Tom Petty, for some reason, even though he's from Florida. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, meat and potatoes, rock and roll. Rock and roll of the people, by the people, for the people kind of a thing. And a lot of these artists also ha have lyrics and themes to do with blue-collar working people, which are kind of the backbone of uh, the Heartland. Uh, we're in Ohio. Um, the Heartland, the hardiest of the Heartland. <laughs> you know, and, and the Heartland kind of extends from Pennsylvania all the way to, bah, I don't know, the West Coast. It's kind of really more a state of mind than anything else. But the the issue is that these artists kind of make their bones uh, singing about the working man, singing what they know, and then many of them go on to become very uh, financially successful but continue to write about those themes, and then they become uh, frequent targets uh, for people saying that they're hypocritical. Yes. And so I thought it was worth exploring, especially in light of the fact that Bruce Springsteen just put out uh, his new album, Wrecking Ball, which is all about 
some of the stuff that's been going on with the economy in the last couple of years and the things that we've seen with Occupy Wall Street and you know the 99% versus the 1% and all of the debates that are kind of uh, swirling around there of uh, whether there is true, uh, if the system truly is rigged, or if people are really just looking for handouts and don't want to work and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, Springsteen comes out with this album that very firmly says that his position is that, yes, indeed, there is a 1% and a 99%. And uh, a lot of people that disagree with him reflexively would say, you know, well, what do you know about it, you poser? You know, you're wearing, you're wearing a pair of tough skins and a shirt from Walmart, but you've got $200 million in the bank. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's an interesting question. It's worth exploring. Um, whether, uh, whether, whether the kinds of topics that an artist should be writing about should be dictated by his own social lot in life. Can the common man artist be, still be considered the common man once he's reached million dollar status? Or hundred, or hundred million dollar status. Right. Well, yeah, we, yeah, I, we know that John Mellencamp didn't quite make it there yet. Sadly, only twenty-five million. Only twenty-five million dollars oh, for John poor man. Mellencamp. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. What do you think? I, I think you know uh, that writing a song is putting an emotion behind it. Usually, I mean, I, I can't quite speak for something like Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> we know their emotion. They like having oral sex performed on them. That's pretty much the extent of Nickelback's emotion. Which, you know, nothing wrong with that. Teach their own. But, you know, for especially the Heartland Rockers, I think they get the moniker because they are tapping into a a common feeling in their songs. And, and emotion. Yes. The, 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 the emotion that a lot of people can relate to, especially people who live in the Heartland. And I... I think, you know, uh, we've heard many stories of artists, you know, like a Mellencamp or who have, or even a Billy Joel, somebody who, you know, wonders if they can still relate to, can still get to that emotion when they've made the money. And I think, personally, I think the uh, the albums prove that it gets harder and harder. Maybe you can, but you're you're almost more. Um, instead, like a Springsteen, you're now telling the story of the emotion rather than feeling the emotion. And I think you may be able to tell a good story, but you're maybe not connecting to that emotion in a way that you could when you didn't have any money. And I think that doesn't mean you can't write a good song, but I think the emotional weight of the song is not going to be the same so do artists that want to sing about uh, those topics that relate to the life of uh, an average blue-collar citizen uh, do they have to take a vow of poverty do they have nope. do they have to uh, give away all of their money to charity so that they just have enough to kind of get by on let's say let's say if you're Bruce Springsteen your tour grosses uh, 40 million dollars uh, do you give away all of that so you only walk away with, say, a hundred grand? <laughs> I, I think, you know, money will, 
you do it for the money. I mean, you, 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 you know, they're putting out these albums not just because they want to tell a story, not just because they want to connect to their audience. They also want to pay their mortgage and they also want to, you know, send their kids to college. And, you know, giving away that money isn't going to help you live your life. You know, so I think that you just have to come at it from a different way. You have to realize that the, you know, the emotion is not the central part of the song. It's the story. And I think Springsteen on this album is is telling the story that he wants to tell. I, and I don't, but I don't think, having heard it, I don't feel, you know, like he's lived it. I think he's reporting on it. You know, kind of like they say that rap, uh, when it was starting out in that whole, you know, early gangster era, is that you were the reporter of the streets. Chuck D famously called it the black CNN. Exactly. And I think, you know, now you're basically getting maybe a you know, a heartland reporting. They may not live in the heartland. They may not... The middle-aged you know, white guy CNN. Which some people, some people would say CNN is the middle-aged white guy CNN. <laughs> That's, yeah. <laughs> Although still others would say that Fox News <laughs> is the middle-aged white guy CNN. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Well, it's interesting because there's actually uh, there's an interview between John Stewart and Bruce Springsteen in the new issue of Rolling Stone, and Springsteen, uh, for the first time, uh, to my knowledge, uh, kind of addresses this very question. Uh, I did not find his answer satisfactory, but it's still an interesting answer. Um, he says that uh, coming from uh, the working class as he did. And growing up in those formative years, um, with his parents living paycheck to paycheck, that that really informed who he is today. And he described it as, your life is a car. Of course, Springsteen would, you know, use a car metaphor. And he said that, uh, so when you're young, the child gets in the car. And then when you're an adolescent, the teenager gets in the car. And then when you're in your 20s, the 20-something gets in the car. And then you're in middle age and you get in the car. And then you're the age that he is now in his 60s and you're, you're really you know, approaching elderly. And the elderly man gets in the car. And, but nobody ever gets out. And so that who you are today may be very different from the child who first got in that car 62 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're all still in there riding together. So that was kind of his okay, explanation explanation for it. Another thing I wondered, uh, kind of in the in the favor of guys like this, is I think a lot of times when the the money that they're worth gets bandied about, um, we, they talk a lot about net worth. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of these guys who've been recording for 30 and 40 years that wrote their own songs, their publishing is a piece of property that is worth so much money that they could give away every single liquid dime that they had and still be technically on paper worth hundreds of millions of dollars because that's how much their catalog is worth. Yeah. So I don't know how much that comes into play here either with how much these guys, you know, how much money, quote unquote, (laughs) they actually have. So when we hear that Bruce Springsteen is worth $200 million, that does not necessarily mean that he's got $200 million in cash buried on his property in Rumson, <laughs> New Jersey. 
stuffed into the mattress. It means that for 40 years he's been writing the soundtrack to people's lives, and except for a few rare exceptions, he's written every single song he's ever performed. And people still buy the albums by the droves. And Yeah. I mean, he's got at least two albums that are, you know, still probably sell uh, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of copies every year. Would that be Born in the USA in Nebraska? I would say Born to Run and Born in the USA Born, okay. would be his two big, biggest selling records. That's just off the top of my head. So I don't know if, you know, maybe there's some of that in there, too. It's just I think it's mm-hmm. a really interesting question because um, it's not something I think about a lot, but to me, it, it more than what they're worth, it comes down to a sense of authenticity, a mm-hmm. sense of how much do they really care about these subjects. So I kind of try to sniff out who is writing about this stuff because they really are concerned about it and who's writing about it because they're pandering. Uh, so it would be like a difference between Springsteen and Toby Keith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I personally feel that Toby Keith is pandering. Mm-hmm. I feel that Bruce Springsteen is not. I feel that he does care about this stuff. And I I yes. feel like he does have at least the appropriate level of guilt over how much money he's made. <laughs> the appropriate level of guilt. <laughs> not too much, not too little. Just right. So what do you think about that? Um, I think that it's... Uh, I, I completely agree that uh, a grand country is my least known and uh, listened to genre of music, but it seems to me like, and, and this is probably going to, I think people who like country like Toby Keith and they think he's a great American and all that kind of stuff, but it just seems to me like uh, like Nickelback. I think Nickelback, to me, I don't feel great emotion in their music. I mean, they seem to be competent musicians. He seems to be a competent singer, but it just sort of sounds like, uh, like music by numbers. You know, you just sort of plug in here, song A, chord C, move to the verse, move to the bridge, and we're done. Here's an album, buy me, love me, go see me in the, and I think Toby Keith is that same sort of thing. He's like, he's like the Americana version of Nickelback, where it's just sort of like, you know, American feeling, American sentiment, you know, verse, chorus, verse, here's an album, go by, you know, see me, love me. And I, I don't ever get that from Bruce Springsteen. I mean, I don't feel like he ever, I, I, he's, he's so, uh, outside of, uh, of control. He can do whatever he wants and what he wants to do is put out an album like, you know, a wrecking ball. And I say that, you know, tells you something. Maybe he can't, you know, Maybe he has a whole bunch of money, but he still wants to report on it mm-hmm. and let you know what's going on. So, you know, he figures he's got a huge audience still, and they're going to listen to what he has to say, so he wants to say something important. I think that's great. Uh, and you know what? Uh, oddly enough, I, I just mentioned to you before we started this thing that I saw him on uh, Jimmy Fallon did like a, apparently they did like a week long thing and they had a bunch of, you know, Springsteen related things do throughout the, the week and on the Friday of there, they devoted the entire show to Bruce Springsteen and releasing his album which was coming out that following Tuesday. They interviewed him which didn't really go that well, uh, and then they had him perform and he's, you know, just, you know, in a tiny little, you know, stage, he just sort of makes a raucous wild party. But the funny thing is, is that as much as I respect him as an artist and a musician, 
I've really never enjoyed his stuff that much. But I enjoy his sentiment, and I enjoy what he feels and how he emotes it and, you know, the way he conveys, you know, his love of things and life and music to everyone else. And it was still a good, you know, a really good performance, even though I'm still not going to buy his album. <laughs> but he's still, he's a, he's a great artist. Mm -hmm. He is. And he, I mean, it's, as he's gotten uh, older, uh, his gifts have... Uh, faltered occasionally you know i've i always enjoyed uh his folkier stuff uh more than his rocking stuff even the ghost of tom jode yeah so like nebraska and ghost of tom jode i thought were excellent albums so i got like really psyched when he put out devils and dust a few years ago because he was going to be you know going back to to making a, a quieter folky kind of album mm -hmm. and i just thought that it wasn't there um, it was it was focused very much on the lyrics and not on the music, which sometimes that can work, but mm -hmm. it just it was not enough, you know. <laughs> uh, and an album like The Rising, which is about a big important issue, you know, with you know Bruce Springsteen's state of the United States in a post nine eleven world. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, in the final analysis, there's maybe three quarters of a good album in there. Sorry, folks, it's just it's just true. <laughs> But then he comes along with a record like Magic, which was his album about the Bush administration, hmm. that uh, even though it did have some weak tracks on it, I thought really hung together quite well as a cohesive work and, hmm. and thought that it was probably the uh, the best album he'd put out since Tom Joad. Uh, and then he puts out his Obama record, wait, uh, Working on a Dream, which <laughs> I tried so hard to like. <laughs> and it's it's just you know there's just there's no there there. And then with Wrecking Ball, uh, we take care of our own. I think is a great first single. Uh, I think that it. Uh, I really loved the fact that he intentionally, in my opinion, not only went back to a sound that kind of uh, reminds the ear of the Born in the USA era, but that he then also wrote lyrics that specifically could be misinterpreted by people who chose to misinterpret <laughs> them. Because we take care of our own wherever this flag's flown. A lot of people have been hearing that and saying, yeah, Bruce, yeah, right, you know, we're getting back to the roots, this is what America's all about. No, what the song is actually saying is, number one, it's a fucking joke <laughs> that we're still saying this about ourselves. And number two, what are you going to do about it? So he yeah. is—he is a capital A artist. He, he never has, yeah. in my opinion, never has gotten the credit he's deserved as a lyricist. He—he he and Lou Reed are my two favorite rock and roll lyricists of all time, mm -hmm. hands down. Nobody—nobody nobody else can touch him. Yeah. And uh, I just—it's a—it's an interesting, interesting burden. So, so getting back to. What we were talking about with you and I both kind of trying to sniff out authenticity versus pandering. Mm -hmm. So there would be people um, who would say, well, you're just kidding yourselves, or they're, they're good actors. <laughs> so maybe what you, you know, music listener, are taking as genuine concern is actually just calculated acting on their part so that you'll buy, so, so that they can get you to buy their records. Well, I don't, I think you've, you know, 
mentioned, you know, the, his uh, Springsteen's last few albums and the the hit or miss uh, concept of it, but it seems to be always timely and relevant, but not. I mean, I don't think would you say that it's, you know, uh, about the Bush era or about the Obama era in the fact that it's um, just trying to reference a small moment to capitalize upon that moment, to capitalize upon the the uh, backlash of Bush or to capitalize on the happy feelings of Obama? Uh, is, it of, is it of the time or is it uh, trying to glom on to the time? To me, uh, I think that's actually the difference in the success of the records because uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the song Magic, the title song Magic. Actually, I didn't remember that album at all. Um, it, uh, wow, I mean, what a brilliant just a eviscerating uh, song because it pretty much is it's sung from the perspective of a uh, magician uh, but what it's really about is how the uh, uh, the GOP uh, has sort of had kind of turned everything into sort of a magic act of <laughs> saying one thing but meaning another and then twisting the words of the opposition. I mean, it just, it's, it's definitely worth listening to. It's not, it's not a, uh, it's one of those songs where even though the music is not exactly, you know, top 40 kind of, it works so well with the lyrics. It's, it's one of his, uh, one of his best songs. <laughs> but then, so, so to my ear, it really came from a place of honest to gosh, uh, authenticity. The, the very last song on, on the record was really kind of a precursor to Wrecking Ball, which was, uh, kind of where this country was and how many miles we have to walk to get back there because we've gotten so far away from what the country was founded on. Mm-hmm. But then I felt like the Obama album was forced. I felt like I felt like he really got wrapped up in that intoxication that a lot of liberals felt during that campaign where oh my god, you know, there's going to be so much change and it's going to be like a new dawn for this country. And I, it did. It, it felt very kind of more like he was writing about what he hoped was going to happen mm-hmm. than what was really going on. I felt it was premature. Huh? I felt that it was premature to release that album so soon after, instead of giving it a while to really see how things were going to actually be. Uh, and so that why it was to me it was a less successful record because you can just almost kind of feel that in the song. It wasn't quite as genuine. Yeah. But that's huh. just my opinion. Well, and but I think that's. You know, uh, when you're looking for the sentiment, you can, you know, if you're looking for it, you can see it, you know. Whether it's, you know, one album or the next, you can, you know, or one artist or the next. So what about a guy like, oh, uh, well, no, I think we've probably Springsteened it to death. Uh, (laughs) Then there's a guy like Bob Seger who really has been immune to all this. I mean... I've never thought once about what Bob Seger's worth. Yet this guy's been putting out <laughs> records since the 60s. That's true, as a matter of fact. But nobody ever really seems to... Nobody seems to, to wonder about Bob Seger. I don't know if it's because he's really much less overtly political. Yeah. He's much more about Ford and being <laughs> like a rock. <laughs> was that Chevy or was that Ford? I can't remember. I don't remember which one. Either. That's probably a bad, a bad uh, commercial. If we can't remember which one. Uh, so, I guess maybe that's why. I mean, I would assume that you know he's probably 
down with union causes. Of course, if he's given his song to the people that employ the unions, maybe he's not. It's very, very, hmm. very, very thicket, thicket kind of an area. Well, I obviously did not spell his name right. S e g a r or e r? S e g e r. So I thought. In case you were wondering, oh, put a comma there, like it was going to try and spell out the Silver Bullet Band. Ah, there we go. Matt LeBlanc. I'm kind of curious as to what that would be. Bob Seger's worth $45 million. See? Hey, more than Mellencamp. More than Mellencamp. Now, that's got to surprise some folks. Yeah. You, you know, think about it. Because, you know, you, uh, he puts out an album, like... Every eight years? Yeah. But he tours, you know, especially around here. He tours a lot. Probably just playing hits and stuff, which, you know, he's like a... Uh, oh, gosh. Steve uh, Miller. Oh, I was gonna, actually going to say... Eddie Money. Mm. Eddie Money's big around here. He comes around a lot. Except when Metal Block uh, is worth $60 million. I just, nice. I had to click on that. So he's worth more money than Bob Seger. And Mellencamp almost combined. Yeah. Wow. Good gig. Good work. You can get it. <laughs> uh, except when Seger tours, he plays the Sheds. When Eddie Money tours, he plays uh, County Fairs. Yeah. Oh, you know, that's true. That's That's a definite difference. So... They must do it for the love of it. Uh, you said, so do we want to talk any more about Heartland Millionaires? I feel like we've pretty much set our piece on Heartland Millionaires because we still have the uh, the Davy Jones conversation and then the big new game show. Oh, yeah. Stay tuned for the game show, folks. I've decided we needed to rip off uh, <laughs> Doug Benson. Only we're not going to be high. <laughs> yes, he does seem to get high even during the podcasts and stuff. Uh, I wonder what his parents think. <laughs> I mean, I know that my mother probably was not happy to tune in and hear me talking about giving rim jobs to alcoholic bums, <laughs> but I can't imagine my mother tuning in to a podcast where I'm getting stoned or talking about getting stoned. Yeah, there's, and there's a couple times where he's just been accidentally so lit that he can't barely do the podcast, yet he still releases the podcast, <laughs> which is always very odd and then entertaining train wreck sort of way. Is he one of those Kevin Smith types that came to weed later in life? Because he, he seemed to, he, hmm. was, he was a comic that would show up and, you know, do almost like throwback 80s comics, observational stuff, mm-hmm. and then one day, boom, he's Mr. Weed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know where, where that came from uh, with this thing. It seemed like he was kind of like a pothead until he did that movie, and now he's inextricably linked to pot because of Super Jaime. And now, you know, wherever he goes, he always has to do a show somewhere at 420, you know, like April 20th. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes if he does a an early show, he has to do it at 420. So he kind of, I don't know if he, he, he may even be sort of like locked into, you know, being it's, the it's, it's become his shtick. Yeah. Which, you know, obviously he still gets high, uh, listening to his podcast, Doug Loves Movies, by the way. And Is the name of the podcast, yes. not just a statement. Oh, not, not just a, <laughs> he just loves movies. <laughs> I just want to throw that out there. He loves them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's, a, it's an entertaining podcast, so if you like movies or comedy or stoners or something. Can you mute me or something? I really have got an issue I need to take care of here that's going to be disgusting. Uh, I think that'll do it. Are you in the... 
All right. Well, as uh, I'll tell the uh, tell them about the game show while you're doing that business, and it's a his version of the is the they kind of like try and guess movies Doug, through Doug's, Doug's version. version is that you try to kind of try and guess movies through an app called the Leonard Malton app where he reviews movies and so. My, uh, my takeoff on that is that we are going to try and guess albums by the album review through the app, the All Music by Rovi app. So. Do you need to check my level again? Nope, now you're good. Alright. Yeah, so uh, we, we tried this uh, off air just to kind of see how it would go, and we've decided that when we're you know, so like, uh, let's say Nick will pick an album, uh, and he will read the review to me. He will not, he, as he's reading, he will not read anything about song titles on that album or the artist, obviously. Uh, and then we'll kind of see if we can guess what it is. We'll both do three albums and see who can guess the most. The tiebreaker will be that if you, that we have to guess the year the albums were made by the, that the other person picked. So, so there you go. It should be pretty fun. You can yeah. play. You can play along. That's right. And so see if you beat us. Play along. So do you want to talk about the uh, the, the deceased monkey or? Yes, I I thoroughly enjoy the monkeys, and uh, I will be seeing Mickey Dolan's when they come here for the Moondog Coronation Ball, and uh, yeah, it'll be him, Casey and the Sunshine Band, Sam from Sam and Dave, and oh, the uh, Credence without. Uh, Fogarty. <laughs> is it still just the drummer? I think it's him and somebody else. Because for the longest time, it was just the drummer. Oh. And it was Creedence Clearwater revisited. Yeah, I think this is something, yeah. So, I like the uh, Creedence, and I'm sure they, you know, they'll pull a journey and get someone who sounds like everybody in the band, so I'm sure it'll sound good. You know, uh, Mrs. 80s, uh, her family uh, vacations every summer at a uh, little insular cottagey by the lake community that has uh, entertainment at this central venue every night. And last year, Mickey Dolenz was one of the uh, artists. One of the artists. And I never go up and listen to that stuff because I'm just an old grump. But I did happen (laughs) to be walking by the venue. And it's one of those things like all the the doors, you know, they keep them open because it gets hot and muggy. Mm -hmm. And he sounded really good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. So I I think you might be in in for an unexpected little treat there. Well, he was one of the reasons I wanted to go see it because I, when I, I found out this is how the monkeys were on MTV when I was a kid. When MTV had just started and they were looking for content to run uh, to fill up time because they hadn't invented reality television yet, <laughs> they they were running old episodes of The Monkees and Monty Python's Flying Circus, both of which I absolutely love. But at the time, when I was a kid, uh, I liked the wild, frantic, wacky nature of the monkeys themselves, but I was like, oh, then they're going to sing... <laughs> I was like, ah, whatever. But the more I watched it, the more I was like, oh, wow, this is kind of catchy. This is kind of cool. And, you know, then I started learning about how, you know, they were the uh, prefab for, that they were created by television studios. And, you know, but then they started to learn how to play their own albums and write their own songs. And uh, they were were a very cool uh, band. And uh, 
I think I don't know if I've told this before, but I I love uh, Jimi Hendrix, and at one point my my favorite monkey story is actually from Jimi Hendrix, is that somehow they said, you know, we are a teen pop you know band for uh, uh, giggly young girls. What we should do is <laughs> is is get Jimi Hendrix to be our opening act. So this was, you know, what, 66, 67. Jimi Hendrix is new and looking for a way to connect to audiences, and they put him as the opening act. And if you've seen any footage of his early act, it was really sexual. I mean, he humped his guitar, he grinded against the uh, amps, and, you know, thrust his pelvis at the audience. I mean, it was a sexual cacophony. And... You know, and the audience are all a bunch of teeny bopper girls, and it scared the shit out of their parents. <laughs> and they and they canceled his tour with them as the opening act, like halfway through the tour, <laughs> and said, "There's no way." And you know, just a huge big fervor, which they say in hindsight that it was all planned. They knew that you know that Jimi Hendrix was going to be too wild for the teeny boppers, but it also got him launched and got him noticed and got him in papers, and you know. He rode that wave to, you know, brief but awesome superstardom. It's sort of like when Madonna had the Beastie Boys open for her on the Virgin Tour. <laughs> this was before License to Ill had even come out. Back in the Cookie Puss days. Nobody was... even knew who these guys were. And it was the same kind of a thing. I mean, they would come on stage with their inflatable penis. And you got them. There's all these Madonna wannabes and their parents in the audience. And they're just like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not a, a a deep cut kind of guy with the monkeys. And uh, when 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 Davy passed away, uh, a lot of people that are deep cut monkeys fans were uh, posting stuff on Facebook of songs I didn't even know about. I've always loved Daydream Believer though, which mm-hmm. I believe was written by Neil Diamond. Oh, I think you're right. And uh, always really just thought that was a an excellent song and admired his performance. He he mm-hmm. sounds like Rosemary Clooney uh, on that song, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure you'd agree with that, but next time you listen to Daydream Believer, imagine in your head that it's Rosemary Clooney singing it, and it'll fit. It'll be, oh, yeah, sounds just like her. You'd mentioned the Prefab 4, even though this is apropos of nothing. I've always hated that nickname, and I will tell you why. It Somebody out-clevered themselves with that. Okay, obviously what it is, you know, the, uh, the Beatles were known as the Fab 4. Mm-hmm. Fab, which I guess is short for fabulous. Yeah. And so then the monkeys come along, and since they're, you know, four guys kind of modeled after the the Beatles, mm-hmm. but cast by a casting director. They did not come together organically. They were they were cast for a TV show. Uh, somebody decided to call them the Prefab Four because, of course, Prefab is short for prefabricated. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did no one... Did no one, when they were trying to make this popular, say to themselves, yes, but pre also means before? (laughs) And so it can be very confusing, because it sounds like we're saying that they came before the Fab Four. (laughs) It's just a terrible nickname. That's true. I completely agree. So that's my two cents. (laughs) Ready to play the Doug Benson game? Hell yes. I'll be curious to see uh, how much editing you have to do as we try to get your freaking iPad to actually <laughs> get to the freaking review. Well, you know. Uh, I was trying it off air, and of course, I am not. This technology stuff frightens and confuses <laughs> me. And 
what uh, theme do we want to have? Do we want to have a, a, a themed pick for the albums? <laughs> um, if you want to go from a from a browse, we can pick a uh, pick from um, what do we got? Art rock, Asian rock, arena rock. Hey, there's a tribute to a previous episode. We'll pick arena rock artists. Okay. <laughs> pick an artist there. Yeah, they got Kiss, Foreigners, ZZ Top. Yeah, I'm sure we can find somebody. Hmm. So what's happening? All right, I'm going to pick. I'm going to find an album. I'm going to pick it, and then I'm going to read the review to you. Okay, everybody's on the edge of your seat. So the, all right, the, the goal here is to see to see if I can figure out what album Nick is talking about here. All right, here we go. After making a promising start with their self-titled debut, this band hit the big time in 1981 with this album. This canny combination of AOR hooks and new wave production gloss boasts some memorable radio-ready tunes, but isn't as solid an album as its success might lead one to believe. The best tunes on this album were songs that became its hit singles. This song is a party anthem that blends some gutsy hard rock guitar riffs with a synthesizer-drenched new wave rhythm arrangement to become a huge hit while this one layers clever lyrics around the jealousy that success inspires in others over a song that mixes pomp rock grandeur with a punchy AOR arrangement full of gutsy yet slick guitar riffs. The band got additional airplay with this song, a moody power ballad that boasts a show-stoppingly emotional vocal performance from the lead singer. This song, a sleek mid-tempo piece built on a hypnotic synthesizer arrangement. The rest of this album isn't as impressive as these hits because it relies on filler to pad the album out. This song is an overwrought song about street tensions whose lyrics are melodramatic to the point of being unintentionally funny. And this song is a sloppy bar band jam with annoyingly sexist lyrics and an awful vocal performance from someone who isn't the lead singer. Due to this overabundance of less-than-stellar tracks, the album fails to be as a consistent a listen as the first two albums, but offers enough solid tracks to please the group's fans and AOR fanatics. Other listeners may want to check out the album's highlights on a compilation before picking it up. Wow. Wow. Okay, because I had, I had two possibilities in mind, but... Neither one would be the artist's third album. Ooh, wait. So, right. maybe I got that wrong. Well, let me just check and make sure. I'm going back to look at the uh, rock albums and Oh, okay, no, I'm sorry. It was it was the second album because they they somehow referenced in the review the one after this. Yeah, even that doesn't help. Holy mackerel, dude. This was so easy when we did it off air. <laughs> it's like we need a uh, well shoot. I think I think I'm gonna screw the pooch on this. Um, I'm gonna have to guess Ario Speedwagon High Infidelity. Ooh, I'm sorry. It was Loverboy and Get Lucky. Wow. Because my second choice was gonna be Paradise Theater by Styx. Ooh, all right. So, wow. So that's uh, that's an X for me. <laughs> Uh, 
you know, I wish you guys could see this. Seeing me try to use an iPad, it got small. <laughs> oh, oh, right in the uh, corner there, that 2X, that'll blow it back up. See, I don't even have a cell phone, guys. So me trying to use <laughs> this thing. Yes, Grandpa, this is what technology is. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really, really bad. Uh... <laughs> I love Lover Boy. I think that's why, because I can't imagine anybody criticizing Get Lucky. There's like not a bad song on it. And that's why I, I was figuring I, I figured I'd pick one that you you might know the album, but you know, when you take away, you know, points like you know the uh the song title and the artists, you're kinda of, you're kinda of like, Oh wow, that's that really does make it interesting yet tough. Oh, you just lost your mic again. Oh, oh I didn't do anything. Nick, Nick is having some mic issues. All right, we got a good one here. All right. All right, the singer, this singer's last solo album was released a year after his first album with this big band in 1986. Although it charted the highest of any of his records, peaking at number 14, it wasn't as successful as his three previous albums, suffering from a slick, synthesized production and a lack of consistent material. The power ballad was a hit, and a couple of rockers raised above the pedestrian level, yet the overall product was rather faceless. Perhaps sensing the lackluster quality of the record, there was a promotional tie-in to retitle the record. Wow. Promotional tie-in to... Um... Wow. Uh... This was the... Uh, can you read the first part just again? Just a, a quick... The singer's last solo album was released a year after his first album with this big band in 1986. i got to be honest with you. I personally find uh, that statement misleading. <laughs> because this album is not this singer's last solo album. Oh, but it probably maybe it was when, he, when the review was written. Right. Okay. So he's had more, but and it was '86. Is that yes? Hmm. Well, yeah, the album by the Big Band was in 1986. Okay, that's why I think we're just confusing. The this album is the is it with his band or with him as a solo artist? This is the, this is a solo artist. It's, it's a solo artist, and oh, wow, that, I'm this was so much confusing. easier when we were not live on the air. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the sample you gave to me, I got, like, in four sentences. Yeah, I know. Um, well, I'm going to say 86 solo. I would say uh, Steve Perry. And, boy, what was the album called? Um, oh, man, I can see what the album cover looks like. It's got O'Sherry on it. Uh, Street Talk. Because you are right that that's the name of the Steve Perry album, but that's not this album. This album is Sammy Hagar. Oh, oh wow, was that a... It was originally untitled and later titled I Never Said Goodbye in the MTV contest. Oh, right. I oh, thought that was going to give it away for you. Wow, okay. Okay, so we're, uh, we're, really, we're really screwing the pooch here. <laughs> but it's entertaining radio. That's what's really... Now, Nick should be much faster. He's a whiz with the uh, with the iPad. The first time I heard they were coming out with an iPad, I thought that it was some kind of tampon with a microchip in it. So what the hell do I know? <laughs> Not sure why you would want that, but... 
I waited in line for it, too. I don't know why. <laughs> Technology has gotten intrusive, so. <laughs> I like this technology up my twat. That's a, the new album from Peaches. <laughs> okay, here we go. At the time of its release, much of the fuss surrounding this album by this group um, involved this group's adoption of synthesizers on their sixth album. A hoopla that was a bit of a red herring since the band had been layering in synths since their third album. These synths... Synths were either buried beneath guitars or used as texture, even on instrumentals where they were the main instrument. But here they were pushed to the forefront on this song, the album's first single, and one of its chief reasons that this became a blockbuster, crossing over to pop audiences. The band had flirted with before, but had never quite won over. Of course, the mere addition of a synth wasn't enough to rope in fair-weather fans, they needed pop hooks and pop songs, which this album had, most gloriously on the exuberant, timeless, this song. There, the synths played a circular riff that wouldn't have sounded as overpowering on guitar, but the Dan band didn't dispense with their signature monolithic pulsating rock. These two guys grounded the song, the rhythm section grounded the song, keeping it from floating to pop, and the lead singer simply exploded with boundless energy, making this scene rock and roll no matter how close it got to pop. And the single was about as close as this album got to pop, as the other seven songs, with the exception of this one, which rides along a synth riff as chilly as the first single is warm, are heavy rock, capturing the same fiery band that had been performing with brutal intensity since one of their previous albums. But where these albums placed an emphasis on the band's attack, this places an emphasis on the songs, and they're uniformly terrific. The best set of the original tunes this band has ever had. Surely the anthem, anthems grab center stage. How could they not when they're the former, when the former is the band's signature sound elevated to performance art, with the latter being as lean and giddy? Their one anthem could be credibly covered by garage rockers and these songs and the dense funky closer this are full-fledged songs with great riffs hooks and guitars and vocals it's the showcase of this band's instrumental prowess as a band the best showcase for the lead singer's glorious shtick the best showcase of their songwriting just their flat-out best album overall at the time of this review it's a shame that this person left after this album. It's got to be Van Halen 1984. Yes. <laughs> okay. I was pretty sure when they said eight songs, but... <laughs> I thought I would let it ride. Pretty pretty ballsy there, going for Van Halen right after Sammy Hagar. Yeah, well, you know, I think... Uh, it's, you know, you wouldn't... You might not expect it, but, you know, I, I figured they'd give enough... Uh, Diamond Dave references that you might be able to go, oh, okay. Okay, so now Mr. Sausage Fingers is going to try to navigate <laughs> the iPad. 
Force Luke. <laughs> okay, this band was pretty much considered washed up when they released this album. Hmm. Uh, they learned a few important things while they had taken a short sabbatical. They knew that hooks were important, and they knew they could play up their looks for MTV, so they delivered both with this album, giving their audience anthemic hooks and uh, leading the most popular album they ever had. Hmm. This doesn't mean it's their best album, since its calculated mainstream bent may disarm some long-term fans, but it is true that they do this better than many of their peers, not just because they have good polished material from professional songwriters, but because they can deliver these uh, deliver this material professionally themselves. Yes, the first three singles don't quite fit into the classic mode of this band, but they are good 80s mainstream material delivered as flawlessly as possible. There's still a lot of filler on this record, but the best moments are among the best mainstream AOR of its era. Hmm, that's that's a lot tougher than I thought it was going to be. Well, I, the, my first thought was that it's Kiss Lick It Up. It's not. That the the part that threw me on that was the using other songwriters, and I'm like, well, they kind of used a couple of other songwriters later in the '80s, but they not well, okay. I, I I don't Heart Heart's 1985 oh. self-titled album. Wow. Okay, that was a good album. That was, that was album. a lot of hits. I actually bought that on LP, I remember, at some point. I had that on LP as well. Hmm. LPs are these big black discs. <laughs> D-I-S-K. <laughs> I really thought this was going to be a cakewalk. <laughs> This album managed to give this band four top 40 hits, peaking at number eight, uh, same amount that 81's album brandished. While they tried to use the same musical recipe, this album comes up a little short, mainly because the keyboards seem to overtake the guitar, and the guitar playing and strong singing. An overabundance of the synth work cloaks the quicker tunes and seeps into the ballads slightly widening the partnership of the singer and guitarist. This song tries to match the powerful balladry, uh, powerful beauty, and while it's a gorgeous ballad, it just comes inches away from conjuring up the same soft magic. Another song grabs attention right off the bat with the stinging synthesizer and catchy guitar riff, and this song emphasizes the vocalist's keen ability to pour his heart out. Okay, this has got to be Journey Frontiers. Yes, it is. All right. Woo. En fuego. All right, well, so now we're going to have to push it to four because you can't possibly catch me. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably true. Uh, Aboriginal rock? What are you doing to me? You're killing me here. Oh, wow, I backed up too far. <laughs> what? Really? Aboriginal rock? I'm kind of curious. What the hell's in there? I don't understand how this stuff works. All right. Let's see if we can serve up a tater for you. 
Over the course of their first three late 70s albums, this band had firmly established themselves as one of the top AOR bands of the era, but the band was still looking for that grand slam of a record that would push them to the very top of the heap. This would be that album. In producer Robert John Mutt Lang, fresh off his massive success with Back in Black, they found both the catalyst to achieve this and the perfect musical soulmate. Lang's legendary obsessive attention to detail and the lead guitarist's highly disciplined guitar heroics, which he never allowed to get in the way of a great song, resulted in a collaboration of unprecedented sparkling efficiency where not a single note is wasted. They're describing a bunch of song titles that's mm-hmm. not really going to help you. Okay. Uh, the band somehow managed to create a... Uh, okay, so in the, in, the, in the big, flawless melodic rocker, the band somehow managed to create both a mainstream hit single and a highly unique-sounding track, alternating heavy metal guitar riffing, chorused vocals, and one of the ultimate wannabe-a-rock-star lyrics. As for the mandatory power ballad, the band also reached unparalleled heights with this song, one of the decade's most successful cross-genre tearjerkers. It has since become a staple of soft rock radio and completely eclipsed the album's other lovely ballad, which was not released as a single. And last but not least, this surprisingly funky track proved to be one of the band's most memorable and uncharacteristic smash hits, thanks to Junior Walker's signature saxophone solo. Junior Walker's sax solo. Okay. Three years later, this band would achieve even greater commercial success on a pop level with a more uneven album. <laughs> All things considered, this album remains their career peak. Okay. I'm going to say that it's... Um, I, I, I'm trying to remember the what the album... Well, Foreigner Double Trouble? Double... <gasps> What? Foreigner four. Foreigner four. You were thinking of double vision. Double vision. Okay. That which it wasn't which wasn't the album I was I was wanting, but I couldn't think. Of, uh, yeah, it's it's the one with the uh, jukebox on it. Yeah. No, no, Four, no. Foreigner four has got jukebox hero, urgent, waiting for a girl like you. Right. Okay. Those Good. are the big singles. Oh, so close. So wow, I got two out of three. You have? <laughs> Did I get one? No, no I got zero. You got, you got oh. nothing. I came up with this idea. I know. Yeah, I'm I'm saying. <laughs> That's okay. That was good. Do you want to? Do you want me to give you one more? Oh no, we we won. That's uh, good. We're just right. we're hitting an hour on this, so. Yes, and we know that we don't want to go over an hour because <laughs> people flee in droves. <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed this hodgepodge edition of the show. Let's see. We talked about Hartley and Millionaires. We talked about the death of Davy Jones, and we played the Doug Benson game that really does need a better name. We'll have to. <laughs> I do like that. That's kind of cute. The Doug Benson game. <laughs> uh, so we have been uh, on the Facebook page and on the previous two shows have been telling you that we're planning to do the big. Live Aid 27th Anniversary Extravaganza. <laughs> and so we want your stories. We want to hear about what you were doing that day. How did you watch it? Did you, you know, hunker down by the TV by yourself? Did you get together with a bunch of friends? Kind of tell us what that day was like for you. And what do you remember about it? What do you remember? Who do you remember seeing? Who do you remember, you know? Favorite acts. Yeah. And then also kind of... It was on the radio also. It was on TV and the radio. It was. Simulcast on the radio. So what did it mean to you that day? But then what does it mean to you throughout the course of your life? You know, they call it our generation's Woodstock, and one billion of us 
were there via radio and television. Some sort of technology. So if you have uh, a story that you would like to share, please, uh, you can either leave it on our Facebook page, which is Me and Mr. 80s. Just go to Facebook and type in Me and Mr. 80s. Like us. Please like us. We like to be liked. <laughs> and uh, leave it there. Or you can uh, send it to our email address, which I'm wondering if our email address is just too confusing. I don't know. Um, it's <laughs> Mr. 80s at rocketmail.com. Now, I do realize that is a lot of letters, but it's M-I-S-T-E-R-8-0-S. I've not been spelling rocket mail because I assume you all know how to spell it, but it's rocket and then mail, like the Postal Service, M-A-I-L, not rocket mail, like I'm a man. Rocket mail. Yeah, not like I'm a man and I'm a rocket. (laughs) And he's got a missile for you. So you can, you know... Send us your live aid story to that email address as well, Mr. 80s at rocketmail.com. I've already promoted the Facebook page. I have not updated the blog, which is Mr. 80s at wordpress.com in almost a year. So, you know, go there if you haven't been there, I guess, because it's, if you haven't seen it, it's new to you. There you go. And until, uh, next week, I guess, you know, keep your feet on the ground, keep reaching for the stars, and, uh, good night, uh, Doug Benson. <laughs> Wherever you are. Wherever you are.